everyone, and welcome. This is episode 273 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Network. I am James with Ryan, and stepping in for Paul, a uh, special guest, Steve Garshinsky, pinch hitting again today. Steve, how you doing? Good. I have uh, too many tabs open and coherent arguments on everything I'm going to talk about today. Nice. <laughs> no, I'm, nice. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have one tab, and I think it's Stephen uh, Vote, not Luke Voigt. So, yeah, don't expect much. <laughs> Vote Voigt is yeah. going to be a, a big topic of conversation today. Uh, Brewers finally made it. Well, not finally. They added a couple of uh, scrap heap minor leaguers to their roster. We'll talk about that and about spring training game starting. Uh, Ryan, how have you been? At this point, is Steve really a special guest? Or is he just like the guy that we call because it's easy? Like, yeah, he's is, just on call. Yeah, he's just call. like, yeah, he's just the on call guy. And like, yeah. And now he's just going to like duck out. He'd be like, all right, one well, call, I'm not Steve's special. All. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we're happy to have you, Steve. So it's not just me and Ryan talking at each other and uh, somebody to keep Ryan honest this week. It's always fun when you're here. <laughs> Uh, we'll get to that stuff in a minute. First, though, a reminder, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate for two bucks a month. That guarantees you uh, get your questions answered both on this podcast and on reporting as eligible. Five bucks a month, though, gets you that question priority, plus the additional exclusive content, including the minor league extra with Ryan and James Anderson of RotoWire. So uh, let's just jump right in because I'm excited to actually have baseball things to talk about instead of squabbling over front office and PR optics and all that stuff that we've been doing for three months. So did, did you watch the game yesterday? Uh, maybe like three pitches. I, I did because it went it was, so quickly. That's all you caught. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was <laughs> out and you know, it, it was over in, in two hours and 20 minutes. Right. So, uh, didn't have a whole lot of chance to, to watch that, but, uh, did you guys catch any of the first first game what were your thoughts yeah I had it on I I kind of pulled a Ryan where I had a picture and picture going I put the the Premier League game on with the Brewers going on at the same time um, and yeah the pace the pace of a baseball game was pretty good now it's spring training so I'm sure that's playing into it a little bit as well so I'm not gonna go yeah nuts about it but um, it was good to see like keep these games moving there's no reason not to yeah, I think early on, probably what we're seeing is a lot of guys aren't even taking close to their full allotment of time. You'll see a lot of pitches being delivered with five, six, seven seconds coming still on the clock. And yeah. so they're not taking it down to the very limit. I think probably as guys get more comfortable with this right now, they're trying to like really go fast paced. They probably will settle in and start bleeding the clock a little bit more. And it'll be more common to see it get down to, you know, two or three seconds before a guy starts his delivery, but it's pretty, it's pretty wild to watch the, uh, the clock just goes away the second that a pitcher like begins his motion. And so like, the, like it, it comes to a very abrupt halt. I always find myself when I was sitting there watching it, like surprised kind of every time that, uh, that they were already pulling the pitch clock, even though the pitcher had like just kind of started moving in that way. So that'll be interesting to watch. Now, will the pitcher see the clock? Like, was it that one that was right behind home plate? Yeah. Is that what yes. they're, that's going to be the setup for the season? Yeah. So there was a whole thing yesterday about how MLB is saying we don't want the actual clock to be visible from the center field camera angle. And that seems stupid to me. I think that's, yeah. it should be visible. Like, that's dumb. Just have it be there because there's so much 
online griping right now about oh this pitch clock thing is so stupid and the the Red Sox the ending I don't know if you saw the ending of the Red Sox Braves yeah. game yesterday <laughs> the fact that it ended on a uh, what was it the bat strike. Yeah, on a, automatic strike, yeah. Yeah, on an automatic strike because the batter wasn't in uh ready to receive the pitch quick enough. Um like that's going to cause all kinds of bitching and moaning and you're going to hear this stuff, but I I think that the there's sort of a general reluctance to like accept anything that Manfred does at this point which like he's kind of earned that, right? Like he's earned uh not being given the benefit of the doubt. But I think once people see that this has been like tested out and really the 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 bugs and the kinks have been worked out in the minor leagues, people are going to start to get more accepting of this and just understand that it's it really rarely is going to be an issue. Um, and when it is, you point to the players. The players all know the rule. They know that they have uh, this amount of time to you know, be in the position they're supposed to be in, whether or not they're a batter or a pitcher. And so if they screw up, that's on them. Like, we we don't need to get all precious about, like, uh, well, a game shouldn't end on a call like this and da-da-da-da. First off, it, it won't. won't. <laughs> it won't very yeah. often. Like, it will. It's going to happen. But also, like, games end on capricious, stupid calls all the time, whether it's a ball or strike call or we've had balk calls end games. We've had all kinds of weirdness call to end games. And, you know, so it's fine. It's going to be okay. The overall result of this is going to be that games move along much quicker. And like, it really is worth noting too. It's not just that that game was two hours and 21 minutes or whatever it was yesterday. It's also the fact that it was a seven to four game. There was offense, and it was that quick, right? Exactly. This was this was offense, and it it clipped along that fast. So, which which again, keep keep in mind, they weren't like making pitching changes and really right playing the exactly. game. So th- those are the elements we haven't seen yet, and how that's gonna you know basically add some more of that time onto it. But mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, let's let's see them screw up and end games weird in spring training, so everybody does it once sees that it's dumb and they can avoid it when the season starts. And then hopefully, yeah, it'll be kind of an invisible thing that's going on. Did you guys see um, uh, Brett Phillips, Maverick Phillips on Twitter? Uh, did you see his post about this? I did not. No. Yeah, I, I retweeted think? it. He basically says, look, uh, I was down in the minor leagues for a month last year and I saw this play out. It isn't a big deal. People adjust. Right now, the big leaguers who haven't dealt with this are all adjusting to it. We will adjust. It's going to be fine. It it moves things along. Everybody just take a a breath and relax. So seeing that was was good, and I think hopefully will settle people's nerves about this thing because I know that that Red Sox-Braves ending has tongues wagging everywhere, and it just – it's an outlier. It it is not going to happen very often. The the younger players who have played with the pitch clock are probably mm-hmm. not going to notice. It's going to be yeah. the older players who haven't had to deal with it before that have been in the major leagues for a while that complain about everything anyways. Like everything's an affront to the way that they played baseball and it's all being changed. It's like, shut up. You're like every other old player ever in the history of baseball complaining about any kind of progress in the game. So, you know, it, like I said, it, yeah, there, there's a pretty good population of players in the major leagues who probably aren't going to notice it. 
Yeah, yep. and there was a player who mentioned that this was faster than what they were used to because they had played under an earlier version of the rules when they were in the minors, and then they'd since moved on to the majors. And so this was like they felt rushed yesterday. What was that, Steve? That was in a, a chat between us. Somebody posted that in there. It was a Google. Yeah, it was online. I forget who it was. Yeah, but, but yeah, but the, the thing with that is, yes, there have been various incarnations of the pitch clock. This one is the stricter one and really is uh, it, it's a little bit tighter in terms of time. And it's also being more strictly enforced. Um, so, yes, there are some players who have had a pitch clock and now are seeing like a more strictly enforced one. And that's also going to be a bit of a culture shock for them. But again, they'll get used to it. These are the rules for everybody. And it, it is going to be like strictly enforced. Umpires are going to be expected to enforce this. I saw some people saying, well, I, you know, umpires are going to be uh, like capricious about this and some will enforce it and some won't. And that's not going to be the case. The expectation is going to be that this is strictly enforced. So, you know, I, I'm glad the first game that ended on one of these weird calls was because of a batter, be, you know, because we assigned mm-hmm. so much of this to pitchers anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so this is at least is kind of a Ryan Braun rule uh, to, keep, <laughs> to keep things moving on on that side as well. The Dustin Pedroia rule, I've heard it referred to because yeah, no more yeah, Garcia Paro, no more else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the mid the mid to late uh, 2000s there was quite the era of uh, what adjusting gloves and doing a little dance and all that kind of stuff uh, before they get back in the box. So it's like, just get in the box, swing the damn bat. <laughs> Speaking of old man complaints, <laughs> <laughs> keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. It's keep moving. It, it, it's interesting that Manfred doesn't want it like prominently displayed behind home plate because I thought that was great. And, you know, we mm-hmm. we're so used to watching like football or basketball, right. With the play clock or the shot clock as part of the score bug, like, Every other sport, this has kind of become a thing. I don't understand, I, mean, I guess, why he's so against it. I can I can see it both ways. I think it would be good if the pitchers can't see it. So that way they're pitching at their own pace as opposed to pitching at the pace of the clock, like kind of watching the countdown for that and, and using all the time. Like, just get the pace of it and move. I think that would be the ultimate goal. But, yeah, in, in the immediate future here, while you're trying to get everybody to move that quickly, they're probably going to need more of a, a visual – um, a sight line on that so they make sure they stay under their time but yeah I think ideally they wouldn't see the clock they would just be moving fast enough that it wouldn't become an issue well no I mean it's gonna have to be visible to the pitchers so that they can make sure that if they're running out of time they know that and they can get their pitch off in time so that they don't violate like it's gonna need to be visible to them. I mean they know when they receive the ball that they have whatever x amount of time well some people have better internal clocks than others so well that's why i'm saying like the longer they do it the more everybody's going to develop that ideally they wouldn't need to have a clock there they would just be moving quick enough that they wouldn't even hit that time no the the issue actually wasn't about whether or not the pitcher could see it it was whether or not the that the tv camera could pick it up and see it there because there's this idea that like it's going to be jarring to geriatric viewers that like, oh, there's a pitch clock there and just make them mad every time that they they see it. And so MLB wants to avoid that. But you're going to have to put the pitch clock on 
the TV somehow. And you've, yeah. you've already seen like the little box. It's very funny. It's like going back to the old days when, you know, they used to take a camera and put it on the, the scoreboard in the arena. And then they would take that camera shot and put it in the corner of the screen and would always yeah. jiggle around a little bit. When everybody would cheer, you would see it go bouncing up and down and everything because it was an actual camera view instead of a, you know, a, a digitally incorporated like thing. I can't see that lasting very long. But no, I, the bigger productions, they'll get a feed from that clock and they'll mm-hmm. be able to run it digitally in the graphics. Well, eventually everybody is going to do that because it's not that difficult to do in 2023. Like it's not hard. They'll they'll figure it out, but they have to do something so that viewers on TV need to see be able to see the pitch clock. They need to. Do well, it. I think more than that, the, the teams are both going to want to be able to see it. So that way they know the legitimacy of calls. Mm-hmm. They, right. they don't want some, you know rogue umpire just making time calls on on pitchers yeah Um, i mean the question is going to be how quickly after the clock hits zero will a a violation be called right like at the the nfl delay a game stuff where you've got to look at the clock hit zero look at the snap look back at the clock like all that stuff like how quick is this going to happen right like there's a beat in between and is that going to be the standard in baseball or is it literally like the, it hits zero zeros, the umpire goes, boop, you know, violation. I don't know. Right. That's that's an open question. All right. We'll see how this plays out. In the meantime, uh, let's talk about some of the new additions that the Brewers made this week. Uh, of course, of, of course, of course, <laughs> uh, talking about Luke Voigt. That's where my brain was. And Tyler Naquin. So uh, a couple of uh, longtime Major League veterans could be decent depth pieces uh or you know uh guys who maybe push other guys off the roster in the case of luke Voigt, because he is extremely similar to uh keston here and we got some questions about that but first of all uh ryan your impressions on both of those guys just as players and what they could bring if they do make the roster So I was telling Steve this, I was having a discussion with somebody this week and we were trying to set the over under in terms of plate appearances that these guys will see in the season and where is the appropriate place to set that number. And we settled on 0.5 for both of them. Um, (laughs) So basically a question of will they or won't they at any point be on the big league roster, I think is the the biggest question here. So no, I'm not expecting major things here. It is possible. It, it's always possible that this would happen, but I will get into it a little bit about like what spots these guys occupy. And maybe there is a bit of an opportunity for, uh, for Naquin to start the year because the outfield is so thin pending right. the arrival of the young players who we're going to talk about in a minute. So we'll save it for that. But like, I think that there's as far as making the opening day roster at this point, I would say it's easier for Naquin to make it. But in terms of being able to sustain and stay on the roster for any sort of length of time, um, I guess that I would give uh, Naquin more of a chance to like get a plate appearance. uh, But Voight, if they both get plate appearances to get more, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, if they keep Voight, then he's going to be a guy that's a contributor on the team versus Naquin. You know, I was surprised. Naquin's really kind of a garbage defender. So mm-hmm. I don't know what his purpose would be because you can't put him out there to say like, well, we're getting some defense while we wait for some young guys to, to get ready because um, he can't really hit either. 
he's had seasons in 2019. He put up a 105 WRC plus in 2021. It was 109. But then, you know, sandwiched in the middle. There's a, a 66. There's a 73, 93 last year. Like he's not a good hitter. He can be kind of average-ish. In his best hitting seasons, he's like a one war player, which is, you know, mm-hmm. as as interchangeable with most anybody else you can find. Especially uh, on this team. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, I, you know, and we'll probably get to it later, but if some of these younger kids get off to a hot start, um, yeah, I don't know what the purpose of Naquin would be. Yeah, more of just like a placeholder until you get there, I think is really his only purpose especially with tyron taylor getting hurt um and he's he's supposed to be back middle of camp so he's not supposed to be out even like into the season at all he's supposed to be back with plenty of time before the season starts but you start worrying about that stuff you know that you you have enough people because they are a little thin in the outfield until those kids start to you know until they get to the point that they want to bring them up you are a little thin in the outfield but I mean, like Garrett Mitchell's already gotten time, so I would hope yes. that that means they're not going to play any kind of service time shenanigans with him. No, like, there's no purpose to that anymore. Well, I mean, you could theoretically, and I wouldn't be shocked if at some point we saw Garrett Mitchell having to be sent back down again. But uh, yeah, he is. I think he's ticketed for the opening day roster unless he's hurt. I think the only way he doesn't make it is if he's hurt. So um, yeah, it, I, it's just a question of like how well he will stick long term more than anything. Right. Naquin kind of strikes me as Mitchell insurance in the event that he's just unplayable offensively for a stretch or something like that. Right. Like, yeah, he's that depth piece or another guy who can kind of be just interchangeable to give guys days off. Um, If Paul were here, he would mention (laughs) that, of course, uh, Luke Voigt has some pretty ridiculous reverse platoon splits. So the Brewers definitely have a type this winter. I'd, don't know exactly what the point of it is, but uh, Luke Voigt uh, versus lefties as a right-handed hitter for his career, only 236, 329, 439 slash line against righties as a righty, 262, 347, 491. Uh, so in terms of WRC plus, that's 110 against lefties. So, okay, still above average and 129 against righties. And again, that's career. So he's had plenty of time in the majors too. Uh, But it's not exactly like he's a platoon mate with Rowdy Telez. And he does a lot of similar things to other guys still on the roster. So I guess that kind of leads me to our first question here uh, from Brian Polakowski asking, assuming about equal performance this spring, does the Voigt signing mean the end of Keston Hira's time in Milwaukee? If so, does Hira have any trade value left? Because again, Keston Hira, like Luke Voigt, can't hit lefties well, mashes righties. Uh, Ryan, your thoughts on what this means for Keston Hira's future? Voigt's a little bit better against lefties than Hira is. He's more, like you mentioned, he is above average. He's just not like remarkably above average against lefties. 768 career OPS against lefties. That's fine. Though, as a first baseman, you would hope for more than that. But, uh, yeah. I think that I I didn't think there was room for Keston Hira before. And I still don't know that they have room for this spot. But the fact that they brought in Voight makes me think that they are planning on leaving a roster space open for a right-handed first baseman slash DH slash maybe sometime outfielder uh, 
in either Voight or Hera. So I guess this does make it more likely that they do it. I didn't see the fit before. I still don't really see the fit, but I guess they're telling us that they see the fit and that they want to do this. So maybe we have to adjust our expectations a little bit on that, but I still don't think it's a great use of a roster spot, to be quite honest. Um, so I, I really, yeah, I, I'm skeptical. I mean, he, he can't play, Voight can't play defense either. Uh, he has a similar profile to Hira. I mean, I guess maybe if they find somebody that's willing to give them something for Hira would be the only way I think that Voight ends up on the roster. I don't think he's there if it comes down to the two of them. I, they'll probably stick with the guy that they know. Yeah, and there's also this question of we're not sure exactly as of this time because we couldn't find it reported anywhere, but usually when guys in Voight's position sign a minor league contract, it is with a caveat that they have to be on the 40-man or maybe even on the 26-man by such and such a date or they can elect free agency. That's pretty standard for guys in this position, so you would think it's probably in there. We can't confirm that. We don't know. I, as far as we've seen, it hasn't been reported anywhere. But I think you could sort of assume that they probably can carry Voight into the season as a minor league depth piece for at least some time and send him to AAA. But I wouldn't expect that to have be able to last all season. Um, there was also some reporting done this week based on roster rules. Did you see this about John Singleton? Uh, I saw that you or somebody else pointed this out that, yeah, he can't be available right away either. Right. Because he was a guy who was cut from the 40 man and then resigned to a minor league deal in an off season, he has to stay in the minor leagues until I believe it was May 15th before he can be activated. So no matter what happens, Singleton has to stick around with the Brewers until that point um, because he like he can't even be in the major leagues at that point. So that's another interesting wrinkle and complication in here. So I think chances are good that Voight is more some depth options here uh, pending something else happening. Uh, but I don't know that we necessarily see him at any point, as I was saying before. Sure. Along similar lines, Brady Steinberg asking, again, does this signing of Voight spell the end of Hira's time in Milwaukee, better reverse platoon splits, and has options remaining? So this is another contract thing, Ryan, we were trying to sort out. Uh, so Voight was uh, non-tendered by the Nationals earlier this winter, and I believe had an option or so remaining when that happens. So what does that mean for the Brewers? Yeah, he actually has two option years remaining, but there, there is actually a once guys get to be a certain uh, length of service, your options no longer matter. Guys have the right to refuse uh, an assignment that becomes a thing. I'm not sure. I don't think he's at that point yet. I think you have to have five and a half years before you can start refusing option assignments. Basically, you have to almost get to the point where you're uh, eligible for uh, free agency. And once you're getting to the point that you're going to be eligible for free agency, at that point, you can refuse option assignments. But I think that he still has that. But I mean, it's kind of academic at this point because he's not on the 40. So he's right, right now. He's a matter. minor league invitee. So he's not on the 40. So the option part doesn't really matter. It, what matters is what's in his contract. 
And that's what's going to control here as to what happens to him. And it probably, my guess is, the way these things are usually structured, sometimes it is they have to be on the roster coming out of camp or they can elect free agency. But more often, it's like James was saying, it's in that first couple months of the season, it's like May 15th or maybe June 1st, something like that, where a guy can elect free agency if he chooses. Sometimes guys choose to stick around. Right. Kind of depends on the organization's uh, situation or if there's an opening somewhere else immediately, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? So Yeah, but getting back to the, the main question here, which was, does this spell the end of the time of Hura's time in Milwaukee? I, we've sort of already dealt with this, but like, yeah, if that felt like it was coming to a close regardless. Like we were reaching the end of that rope uh, quite a while ago, to be honest. It, it's almost remarkable he's still here at this point uh, <laughs> more than anything. So yeah, I, I, it's it's impossible to imagine them both on the roster at the same time unless yeah you know, Rowdy is hurt and then things yeah you know, it opens something up. But it, yeah, I, it's it's really difficult to see Hira making it on the opening day roster. But I, I I guess at this point we have to just expect it because that's the direction that they keep going with all this. I mean, when when a guy has pedigree, they get chances. They do and. Yep. Here has got pedigree. He's, you know, was a top five prospect in baseball. Um, those guys are going to, they're going to be able to stick around and get opportunities. So I think that's what he has going for more than anything else right now, as far as, you know, sticking around. It's just, he was ranked that highly for a reason. And I mean, there are moments where we see it, you know, it, it's not like he's completely useless at all times. You know, there, there, there are moments where we can say like, yeah, there's, there's the, the guy who was supposed to be an anchor bat in this lineup. Um, it's just, you know, the chances of that happening are so slim now. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I think when push comes to shove, if they have to make a decision, they'll probably default to a guy in the organization. Plus they probably have to do it just for the, uh, um, the clubhouse at a certain point. Um, if they're going to come down between two guys, uh, make sure the clubhouse is happy and pick the guy who's been around for a little bit. Well, and Hira, it was reported a lot last year that he's really beloved by his teammates because he's had such a rough run, both personally. Who's not beloved by the teammates? That's true. But Which he, guy in the clubhouse like does everybody hate? Because <laughs> we run down the list and everybody seems to be beloved. Well, apparently it was Jesse Winker in Seattle because well, there yes. were a lot of stuff uh-huh. about him being an asshole in Seattle. But we'll see how that works out here. But yes, fair point. <laughs> nobody's going to the media like, oh, that guy is such a prick. I hate him, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he got singled out for extra praise because of the fact that he had been through so many ups and downs. He'd been literally up and down, what, 10, 15 times? Like, he just keeps getting bounced from AAA back to the majors, and he, he struggled through a lot, and the teammates still love him and respect him and think that he is doing a good job, so... That uh, I yeah, we'll we'll see. I it probably would go over poorly if they uh kept somebody from the outside as opposed to Hira. So maybe that makes that less likely. But I don't know. I would think there would also be some sort of a feeling from other players that like Keston Hira deserves to just get an everyday role somewhere, and that's definitely not going to happen with the Brewers. So maybe right. like it would be better for him just to go to a place where he could play a lot. Send him to Oakland and just let him, you know, play every day. Yeah. 
I'm still pushing for him to like go to Colorado and just launch 40 home runs in Coors and and have fun that way. That'd be fun. Yeah, I mean, he probably would, right? Like that's yeah, yeah, <laughs> he probably would. Forty home runs with like a 280 on base. That's fine. It's the Rockies. Yeah. Who cares? No, I know. Right. Yeah, it just kind of blends in there. <laughs> Uh, one last uh, question on this topic comes from Brock Bochamp asking, uh, if you're the Brewers GM and had to make a decision today, do you enter opening day with Luke Voigt or Keston Hira on the roster? Steve, you kind of uh, alluded to this. Are you thinking? Yeah, Hira? like I said, yeah. all things being even, I think you stick with Hira. He's younger. I mean, Voigt's, what, 32? He's uh, not like, young. Yeah, in that neighborhood. Yeah, so I, I mean, yeah, you stick with the kid who's 20 six or whatever here it is now yeah he uh he turned uh 32 yeah, on the 13th he's 26 yep oh no Voight. yeah Voight turned yeah, 32. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah we're here here is 26 i'm like yeah pick the kid that's been in the organization that everybody knows that's six years younger you know i i, I don't know why you'd go with the older player unless they're really going by just an ability to keep shuttling a guy back and forth if you can't do that with here anymore yeah, I think if I had my choice at this point, I would go Voight to AAA and Hero to Oakland or Colorado or whatever. But I don't think I would open with either on the roster. All right. Uh, moving on, some more Patreon questions this week. PJ Wessels says he actually has two questions, one silly and one serious. So PJ's first question is, what are you going to do with the extra 30 plus minutes per day with games being shortened by the pitch clock? <laughs> And number two, DH seems to have become a bit of a logjam with Winker here of Voight plus any and all resting players. Are there going to be enough at bats for everyone to get comfortable or succeed? So uh, let's go. First of all, Steve, what are you going to do with that extra half hour? Go to bed early or what? Uh, well, I mean, that's always an option. You know, <laughs> the thing that you'd have people complaining like, oh, I love baseball, so I want to run forever. And it's like, well there are more games going on. So it's real easy when the game finishes to go like, Hey, what's going on on the West coast. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's always something that that's one of the reasons why I've always, you know, said like, if these games are shorter, it would be a good thing because people don't watch games on the West coast as much. And a shorter game would give them an option, at least to flip over to see some of those players with a little bit more frequency. So I, you know, I, th I think that's, that that's legitimately something that would be good for baseball as opposed to just, yeah, I can get an extra 30 minutes of sleep. Yeah. If the game is ending between nine and nine 30, especially those six forty starts, which we get on weekdays uh, during the school year, if games are ending routinely between nine and nine 30. Yeah. If, if a lot of people can flip over and watch, you know, the first uh, hour of one of those West coast games, maybe catch a little uh, Mike Trout and Shohei Otani out in, uh, in Anaheim, like, those sorts of things that can only be good for the sport and only be good from that perspective. So I think that like that definitely is, is a big plus from that, but yeah, like go to bed earlier. That's, and I mean, we'll all, we'll all be watching on MLB TV anyways. So uh, we should have <laughs> access to all the games. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's very easy to just flip over once you're already on MLB TV to just go right over to the next one. Get some baseball zen while you're at it. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, second part of the question here. So we kind of addressed the gear of Voight situation. So I guess if neither of those guys are on the roster, Ryan, is there a logjam at DH? Or how do you see that uh, kind of cycling through? Yeah, I mean, he didn't even mention uh, Contreras, who I think is going to get some plate appearances uh, on days when he's resting and not catching. 
he'll probably get some plate appearances at the DH spot, uh, especially because he's a nice compliment to Winker there, right? Right-handed compliment to yeah. Winker, who probably won't play a ton against lefties, at least early on. So they'll probably use those as opportunities to keep him rested and make sure he's healthy. So, yeah, I, I think this is going to sort itself out. I don't they can't have Hira and Voight on the roster at the same time unless somebody else is hurt. Like, literally, there just is not room for that. They cannot do that. So I think this is largely going to sort itself out. Um, and I wouldn't worry about it. I think it'll, it'll yeah, take care I mean, of itself. Every, every spring, there's a debate of how do they get everybody at bats? And, you know, somebody doesn't make it out of spring healthy. Somebody gets off to a slow start. You know, you have early season injuries. Um, it, it works itself out. Every year it works itself out. <laughs> at, at some points, you start saying like, oh, we're short on bodies. Why is this guy getting at mm-hmm. bats? So, right. yeah, I wouldn't, especially in February, I wouldn't worry about uh, log jams. Uh, very much for sure all right uh next patreon question kind of covering the events of the first game of the of the spring <laughs> schedule jay google asking uh so garrett mitchell may go 40 40 this year <laughs> of course hit two home runs uh inside outed one which i don't know maybe tells me the bouncy ball is back or maybe it's just arizona but uh after the game, yeah, that that home run, run, I was trying to figure out how many things were going on for that ball to make it out of the park between <laughs> Arizona, how the ball was put together, all of that stuff. You know, yeah, early whatever season, early yeah. uh, spring training pitching. Someone responded to me on Twitter that it was blowing out to left in that game. So yeah. there's part of the explanation, at least for us, is that the wind was blowing out to left. But yeah, my first reaction to that first home run was that ball is looks juiced because that was not a great <laughs> swing and he just sort of popped it out there to left field and it just carried and carried and carried. Yeah. That second home run he hit was a bomb to center field. Yeah. Yeah. Like that one, that, that one right? legit yeah. was a bomb. Yeah. So, I, I mean, mean, as far as 40, 40, you know, every time <laughs> I think about 40, 40 players, like Jose Canseco is the guy. Cause I remember when it was the big deal when like Jose Canseco is going to be the first 40, 40 player of baseball. So, um, I guess Garrett Mitchell now can occupy that that same rarefied air with Jose Canseco. <laughs> Just like we were talking about, right? He needed to get the launch angle up, Ryan. So I guess promising early returns on three at-bats. Yeah, I mean, you have to take all of this with a huge grain of salt. It's spring training. It's early spring training. The pitchers are really just like trying to get loose and just trying to get the ball over the plate at this point. Like they're not nobody is trying to pinpoint command. Nobody's trying to throw out scouting reports, stuff like that. So we have to take it all with a huge grain of salt. But it is there are a lot of guys with 70 plus numbers on their jerseys. There are a lot (laughs) of guys with 70 plus numbers. Speaking of another one, because we didn't get a question about this, but did you see uh, Joey Weimer uh, easily swipe a bag yesterday as well? I think he had two hits and then also stole a base. And uh, he is a big, big man, 6'5", 220, 230, like big, big, big dude. And uh, he absolutely flies, just absolutely flies. He is very quick. And you could see that, like, if the Brewers weren't already filthy loaded with center fielders, they would probably have been giving him some run in center field because he could definitely go take a glove and be out there. I don't know if he'd be plus or anything at it, but he could definitely take a glove and go play center field. Hell, Aaron Judge was playing center field a bunch for the Yankees last year. Like yeah. he could he could go do it and be at least that good. But they just have no need because they have 
like legit, really, really, really good defensive center fielder in Garrett Mitchell and another one in self who will probably be pretty good as well um, because he has the speed to do it and seems to have the aptitude. So, yeah, but Weimer really was was looking pretty good, too. Yeah, I mean, I saw I did see Garrett Mitchell talking after the game about how cool it kind of was for him to, you know, be in there with Sal Freilich and Joey Weimer out there just because they've spent so much time together as a unit in Nashville. Right. And the Mm -hmm. fact that all three of them are basically interchangeable defensively and how that can be an asset. But uh, yeah, if you're. Speaking of our next question, I guess, Steve DeRozier asking, what are some things that you'll be paying attention to in spring training? I think for me, that's one, right? It's like that glimpse of the future outfield kind of thing and how those guys play together, uh, you know, when when they get the opportunity, even if it's in the back half of these games where things don't really uh, happen against major league quality players, you at least get to see these guys in action, right? So I guess for me, that's kind of what I'm looking for, but Um, I'll get You know, I think if, the Brewers are going to outplay their projections this year. It's going to be based on somebody in that group probably coming up and uh, having a better than expected season. So, yeah, I think that's a lot of where we can look at like, okay, where can the Brewers break out? Where are those opportunities for guys who can outplay projections? Um, And really, I think, you know, make this team that's what a mid eighties projected win team, you know, get them into the nineties and I think make them more of a um, comfortably, uh, in the playoff type team, as opposed to somebody's probably the right on the edge, but looking looking in from the outside at the moment. Yeah, they're right on that cusp. It depends. Pakoda has them closer to ninety wins and winning the division in a close race with the Cardinals. But Fangraphs does have them firmly in the mid eighties. I think they were at about mm-hmm. eighty five, eighty six there. So yeah, it depends who you look at. But um, yeah, I definitely watching that. It's really the answer here is the young players and the new players. That's what I'm going to be watching in camp. But that's kind of the answer always is you're paying attention to the young guys and the the, the new guys. So, um, yeah, I think that's that is the standby answer for this. Yeah, I mean, how long have we just sat there looking at Bryce Terang coming over from minor league camp every so often? I saw it. I think it was Adam McKelvey, but I mentioned this is Bryce Terang's like fifth major league camp and he's mm-hmm. not yet broken into the majors. So like he's experienced in that sense, at least. So, uh, but you know, th- there's guys like that every year where they get brought over from the minor league side a handful of times and get to play against the the big leaguers. And that's always cool to see. Um, Jay Google, our next question here asking kind of in a similar vein, which camp battle are you looking towards the most? So this is the other thing, too. I know we've kind of talked about how a lot of the rosters settled already, but Ryan, you know, there's bullpen spots, there's backup infielder spots. How do you see those shaking out? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who they trot out first in the fifth spot between uh, Adrian Hauser and Wade Miley. That one will be that's very interesting because I don't think you open with a six man because there's enough off days early that they shouldn't need it. So they should be able to run with a five man and then put the other guy in the bullpen to start. So I think we will we'll see that. Um, But the answer here is like the bullpen stuff. I really want to see who ends up getting sorted, especially because there are some decisions that have to be made between Guerra and uh, Gus Varland, guys who have to make the opening day roster or they have to be uh, exposed to waivers or in the case of Varland offered back to the Dodgers, who I would assume would snap them right back up. So I think that 
if those cases are the ones that really matter because you're not talking about whether a player goes to the major leagues or AAA. You're talking about whether or not they're going to be on the roster at all. And that's going to be a focus for me. Yeah, I can't get excited about the bullpen like that. <laughs> really? <laughs> you have a problem with bullpens, Steve? Please do tell us more. Just just names. <laughs> Jersey interchangeable names. Yeah, just interchangeable. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think those position players in the outfield. because Though I, I say that knowing, though, that's probably not going to be a battle early on because Mitchell's, like we were talking about earlier, is going to be the guy that will get the first shot. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. Where's Freddie at health wise? I assume I, I haven't heard anything to suggest that he's in any way uh, inhibited from starting camp normally and on time. Because we've so, talked I mean, about Ashby as being behind, and they've talked about Jason Alexander. Yeah. They haven't talked about. I, I think Freddie is all systems go. Yeah, I mean, so not a battle, but I want to see you know Peralta get out there and just throw and be healthy. Um, cause I think that's going to be a big key for this team to bounce back. Cause I mean, that's when they have those three rocking at the top of the, uh, rotation. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's when the brewers are formidable. So, you know, I think that's probably the biggest key at the moment. Yep. That's true. Yeah. Definitely don't want to see him out there, like throwing in the upper eighties, <laughs> you know, that'd be some cause for concern going forward. Although he is still, just unless that's the out. goal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> That's that's another thing I'll be paying attention to in spring training is the freakouts over the the gun ratings. Oh my god, you know Devin Williams isn't hitting mid nineties or Freddie's in the upper eighties. That's always a fun spring training storyline too. And, and sometimes it's just they're ramping up, and sometimes it is because they're hurt. So we'll just see uh, how well, that goes. And then we throw the World Baseball Classic in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So watching watching some of those performances at that time. So that'll be uh, interesting as well. Exactly. All right. I tried to avoid this topic as long as I could, but we do have a couple of questions about the arbitration process. Yay, because the Corbin Burns stuff still top of mind for a lot of people. So Tim Braun's asking, uh, you spoke last week a lot about arbitration and mentioned that a comp for Burns settled at the same number for the Brewers offered but that was last year. So do these cases not take into account any kind of inflation or am I misunderstanding where or when the cop number came from for Burns? So Ryan, I know you wanted to address this. Yeah, so first thing, um, I made a mistake last week and it doesn't affect like the material analysis of what it was, but it it was a a misstatement on my part. When they did actually comp to to Justin, Justin Bieber, (laughs) <laughs> Shane Bieber. <laughs> yeah. They they did cop to uh, Shane Bieber. And that is 100% true. The, the number that they pulled for that was absolutely um was absolutely related to what he had gotten and that was what their argument was was that you know he was a good cop for for Shane Bieber. But where I was wrong is he did not set Shane Bieber did not set that number last year. That was not in 2021 or sorry, 2022, that he set that number. It was actually this year. Shane Bieber is at the same point that Corbin Burns is at in terms of this was his arbitration two season as a starting pitcher, and he settled, what was it, two days before the the hearing was supposed to happen, or before the the numbers were supposed to be exchanged. And that was why the Brewers then filed at the number that they filed at was because, oh, hey, look, Shane Bieber just settled, and this is a perfect comp for Burns, so let's just go with this. And 
that was what the the deal was. Shane Bieber absolutely was the comp. It was just that it it happened to be this year that it happened instead of last year. So just to clarify that point that that was when I said last year that it was Shane Bieber in 2022, it was actually Shane Bieber in 2023 that they were comping to. Um, but getting actually to Tim Braun's question here, um, I, I don't believe they do take into account inflation. That's not how that works. Uh, this is no, just, I prefer not to. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> right. not how anybody gets paid anymore. Yeah, that, uh, exactly. We were just having that discussion. My wife and I were having that discussion about her raise for this year. It's like, oh, so that was that was nice of them to up it, but it's still way below inflation. So great. Um, but anyway, the uh, the numbers here are yeah. The the main thing to know about arbitration is just that it's a screwy system, but it is also one that like if you heard noise this week, um, there was noise being made that one of the parties would like to throw it out and go to something different. And it wasn't the players. It was the owners want to get rid of arbitration. So if that gives you an idea of uh, why the players like arbitration, even though it results in a lot of hurt feelings and anger between the sides, even though that does happen, that's actually a feature, not a bug here. Like that's part of what they like about it. And it, uh, I think we need to just sort of understand that like uh, arbitration is a system that the players like because it does force salaries upward. Like teams try to hold those numbers down. That's their role in the process. And the players try to force them upward and they do over time move upward. That is, it is part of the deal here is the arbitration process allows the numbers to move up. So even though it's a, it's a a nasty and divisive process, especially from a, a public relations standpoint, it does serve a purpose for the players and they're the ones that want to maintain it. Owners would rather get rid of it. All right. Well, on the topic of arbitration, our next Patreon question comes from Mark pod Scarby asking, have you had a chance to read the Twitter thread by raise reliever, Ryan Thompson? He makes it sound like arbitration is more emotional, emotionally based than I had thoughts. I'm curious about your thoughts. So I pulled up the Twitter thread here just so we can read through it really quick. Uh, he also, Similarly, had a, a rough go of it, at least in the arbitration process. And, and a lot of players actually did. Uh, clubs came out ahead quite frequently this winter. But uh, Ryan Thompson had a, a pretty significant and, and lengthy Twitter thread earlier this week. So uh, basically saying, um, you know, quote, I want to make clear that although I lost my case, there's absolutely no ill will towards the Rays as they were professional and respectful as possible considering the circumstances this is merely a review of the process and go through, you know, six points of criteria that, that the case was supposed to be decided on. One being platform year contribution, then career and consistency contribution, record of past compensation, comparable baseball salaries, as we've talked about uh, with uh, Shane Bieber and Corbin Burns, and then the existence of any physical or mental defects. And then number six, recent performance of the club. So, Ryan Thompson said, basically, uh, his approach to the hearing was to stay as strict to the criteria as possible. Um, he was concerned, though, that three of the arbitrators have an unknown knowledge of the game of baseball. Maybe they play fantasy baseball, or maybe they call scoring runs points. No one really knows going into it. We had to assume that the arbitrators were savvy enough to understand basic rules and statistics. I believe that assumption is incorrect, he said. So 
this is something we've heard players mention too that the uh, people serving on the arbitration panels aren't exactly baseball fans or even baseball knowledgeable uh which in an arbitration case that's supposed to be strictly about the facts maybe not terrible right it just kind of comes down to who's uh you know more persuasively arguing but uh you know he he went on to say the most important statistics for middle relievers or setup men as he are or as he is are holds and leverage index both of which i excelled in both the platform year and in his career but the raise he said did an excellent job of discrediting holds and leverage while targeting uh his blown save numbers lack of left-handed youth left-handed hitter usage and a fan direct fan graphs metric called meltdowns so they discredited holds but used a fan graphs metric in in their argument against him um basically went through his numbers uh how how he excelled in, in those things um and how meltdowns are not an official mlb stat he'd never heard of it and maybe never will again but uh you know the Rays decided to use that in the arbitration hearing as part of their arguments um and he thinks the use of buzzwords by the team uh, swayed the arbitrators using things like blown staves, meltdowns, and being protected from left-handed hitters created a bias. He said it was a brilliant strategy. Uh, but basically, um, he, he went through all this case, and he's got several more tweets here that we can maybe link to when we post the show. But uh, Ryan, I guess let's just start with you. Your, your impressions on that insight into the arbitration process and how things played out in that specific case. Yeah, it was definitely revelatory in that I learned some things. Uh, I sort of blanched at the existence of any physical or mental defects. That one jumped out to me. I'm like, I didn't realize you could go in and argue that a guy has had case and like point to yep. stuff and do that. So that was something, even though it doesn't seem to have come up in this case. Um so there's there's that. Uh, and by the way, Ryan Thompson was one of the uh, Rays who refused to wear the patch last summer that during that whole kerfuffle over the pride thing. So I don't know if that fits into where this I guess it doesn't fit to one of those criteria, but you could work it in somewhere in there. But anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, it, it was really interesting that uh, they went into like discrediting holds and discrediting like the, the arguments that Thompson's team was going ahead and making and that their focus was on like the meltdowns and whatever. And I think that that really does get into, especially like when it comes to relievers, the thing that Josh Hader complained about, and if you want, you can go back and listen to Josh Hader talking about this was in 2019 basically saying that there isn't a good way for relievers who aren't getting a large number of saves to get paid in arbitration. You basically can't do it. There's no way for a, a reliever, no matter how good they are, if they aren't getting saves, they're not going to get paid in the arbitration process. And that is, yep. that's a problem. And that's like, this is truly an issue with uh, the thing with the, the arbitration system and how it, it hurts certain players and that you can use teams will obviously construct their argument based on what, uh, uh, like, like they will probably go out and for a release or for, sorry, for a, a pitcher who has a really good win loss record, I'm sure they will play down win loss record and they will say, Oh, it's really not indicative of anything. It's not, um, 
we really in this day and age we have so much better to use like win loss record doesn't really matter but if a player has a bad win loss record because you know their team is trash and they're not providing uh run support i'm sure a team would happily point to the number of losses that a player accumulates and say look they're they're losing games they're just not that good so well ryan and and i think the other thing you have to remember is a lot of this is based on precedent Yes, you know. Is. So even when you're talking about win loss records, like somebody could lead the league in wins now, and the the number of wins pales in comparison to guys from a few years ago when they're pitching deeper into games and getting more wins than they are now. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that's going against a lot of players. You know, like you said, you know, as as far as relief pitchers are concerned, like they're basically graded on how many saves they get versus blown saves. Mm-hmm. Where if you're not a if you're not a closer, you can rack up a lot of blown saves and you're not going to get any saves on the other side um, right. of that either. And again, that's why someone like Hater wants to be, you know, wanted to be a closer, which I don't begrudge him that. No. You know, again, Hater deserved to get paid and that's the way to get paid. It's just unfortunate that it it's not the best use of your roster because guys are trying to get paid like they should, you know, that that he wants to, to do something like that. So... You know, I think that's always working against you in the arbitration process. Like it's hurting teams in a certain, uh, to a certain degree. You know, the other thing is, the the arbitrators are not savvy baseball people. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's been established. Um, I think Craig Calcaterra is the one who pointed out, like when you're in these arbitration cases, you don't have a lot of time to explain advanced stats. Yeah, like you mm-hmm. have to get to your argument. Yeah, and so if you're wasting time on saying like. These are the the elements that go into war or anything that, you know, would, would be even more advanced than that, like explaining spin rate for pitchers or something like that. You know, you'd be burning the amount of time you had to make the case for your player by just trying to argue about things they do well and why it should be considered in the first place. So, you know, the, the process is set up um, against the players as far as like introducing any kind of new ways to uh determine what their actual value is to a team and that really does come through thompson goes into some detail about that in here and it's one of his main gripes is that you have non-baseball experts hearing these these hearings and that does cut both ways there is certain advantages to people not being like deep in the weeds to really understand this stuff and they're just judging based on the 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 arguments that are made in front of them right there's an advantage to that but there, there are also some huge drawbacks in that you can't really get deep into how how valuable a player truly is because you just don't have the time. It's an, You have one hour, and the other side has one hour to make their case. So it's just it's not conducive to deep analysis. It's, it's going to be very surface level, and you have to sort of take your chances. If you're going to go and make your case based on something that you really have to spend a lot of time explaining, well – you you're going to miss out on other pieces of your argument that you could potentially make. But the, the other thing here that he brought up that I also found interesting is that the arbitrators, this is not like the Supreme court where they have to like write a decision. And in that they, they, they spell out, these are the arguments we found persuasive. And this is what the precedent is. That's, that's not how it works. They basically just say, nope, we side with you, we side with you, and that's it. They don't have to explain why. And that seems like a problem in that 
you don't actually know what the arguments were that were persuasive other than, you know, I'm sure that the the people that that do this for the teams, they all collaborate. We know that Paul's talked about that. And I'm sure the players also, the people that make the arguments on the behalf of the players, I'm sure they also collaborate and say, hey, what what has worked for you? What hasn't? So they get a feel for that. But it would be interesting to know what actually works on the arbitrators. What what are you making your decisions on so that we could fine tune our arguments to those criteria, right? That would be really nice. And that isn't something that's done. So that's also kind of a drawback of the system. Yeah, that was definitely how he concluded that that thread and in, in his main concern, uh, basically saying like his side argued on those six criteria. And it, it appears that the decision was made outside of that, which was concerning to him. And it'd be nice to know exactly what they were being graded on, so to speak. Right. But as you mentioned, you know, they, they don't make a public decision. There's no, you know, written opinion on these things and probably by design too, right? Like the owners don't want that stuff getting around then too. But also I'm not sure there's much rhyme or reason to a lot of these arbitrators anyway, if they if they don't really know the game and they're just kind of going on the strength or, or the persuasiveness of the arguments, there's not really a lot to be gained maybe by writing these decisions. I don't know. It was just a nice like, you know, another insight into the process that we don't exactly get a lot of, uh, you know, on the outside. We just see that result that, you know, club one, player one, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. um, definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it already. All right. Um, so next Patreon question this week comes from My Only Lemonade asking, all the front office drama this winter inspired me to reflect on past ownership PR battles. We've heard this podcast make comparisons to the disastrous Wendy Selig Preeb era as a way of helping fans gain some perspective. But I wonder if any of you remember the craziness of the transition to Euless Payne in 2002. Significantly, mm-hmm. <laughs> significantly, who was the first African-American MLB CEO? Not really a question here. Just curious if you have any memories of that time right before Mark took over. So, uh, Ryan, clearly you have some thoughts. What What do you remember about the Euless Payne era? I remember. So I wasn't living in Milwaukee at the time, and I didn't have like a background into who he was and why he was important in the community. I just knew that they trotted him out and really made him in that that very end of the Dean Taylor era. Uh, of being jammed before uh, Doug Melvin was hired. I remember that being like, oh, this guy is going to make everything right. Things had, had fallen on such hard times. I think younger people don't realize how how far into the bottom of the barrel the Brewers really were at this point, especially coming off the 2002 season where they were just disastrously, was 106 loss season. They're just disastrously awful. And uh, I think that they brought him in because he had a lot of credibility and because uh, they wanted to basically have that credibility and bring it into themselves. And it didn't seem like they really wanted to hand over control of the operation to him, that he was being brought in as a, a figurehead, somebody who they could point to and say, Hey, this guy who is trusted and is like a big deal in the community um, is now like in charge of things without really giving him the, the, the authority and the breadth to actually do those things. And it, it ended very quickly and sourly. I think it was, it was barely a year that he, he was around and it left a bad taste in the mouth. And I think it was 
after that incident, after that happened, I think the sale became inevitable. They were going to have to put the team up for sale and it, the ceilings were no longer going to own the team at that point. Like that was sort of a last ditch effort. My impression was it was a last ditch effort to sort of resurrect their, their flagging ownership of the team. And it spelled, it filled spectacularly. And that was it. I've tried to read about it. And I'm like, Oh God, I barely remember when any of this happened. It seemed like it was such a whirlwind when, uh, Ananasio took over and Melvin, you know, came in, um, so, yeah, it's I, I mean, yeah, clearly they were looking for somebody to be a figurehead because they were such a rudderless organization at that time, um, you know, and obviously that didn't work out very well. It took I, I mean, they weren't completely devoid, you know, because they they did start rebuilding the farm club at that time. So the club had some stuff going for it. But, yeah, I mean, it, Payne's time like I don't know how much of an impact he was actually able to make well no and I don't think he was given any sort of control to really no. make a huge impact it it was you know they were trying to put a happy face on things and um, I'm sure that you know they were going for a PR win and going for something that way and people were just fed up with the sea legs there was a lot of was that the last time they kind of had that position as somebody to come in and do it as opposed to holding it for a promotion for whatever GM or executive <laughs> to kind of continually move up so you could keep them in the organization. Because there seemed to be more of a, a split between the the general manager and the baseball side and the you know actual organization business side of clubs at that time. Yes, there was. It well now it's the the baseball operations side you have the gm rising to like the president of the baseball ops and they silo off the other stuff and that's rarely talked about except when you have nepo babies like uh the the guy in castellini in uh in the reds land where he's like i thought you gonna say what's his name mork mork ananasio or whoever's like their their pr guy now <laughs> mark yes um what you're talking about is, yeah, the idea that they uh, they used to have people that would run these teams that were more uh, business side of things than they were baseball side of things, and that used to be a bigger deal, and it's it's not as big a deal as it used to be now. Yeah, like you've got the the Brian Schlesinger's of the world, right, who are like chief operating officer, or Rick Schlesinger, yeah, Rick Schlesinger, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, on the business side, right, and then like you were mentioning, the the baseball ops is still kind of squared off, but yeah, it, it's just an interesting time uh, to look back on. Admittedly, I don't know a lot about it. <laughs> it was almost it's probably more than twenty years ago now at this point, so. Uh, but definitely a, a reminder of just how bad things can get <laughs> and not necessarily, you know, count your blessings with the Adonacios or anything like that, but uh, it, it can always get worse. Right, Ryan? Yeah. Well, I would say count your blessings that I would explicitly say that, that like it really <laughs> can get a lot worse. And there was, there was some stuff at the end of that era too. There were people who were very vociferous in their, uh, their dislike of the sea legs and, specifically Wendy Selig Preeb. Um, and that often came out in nasty, despicable ways. Um, I can remember hearing a lot of that stuff 
um, when I first moved down here that like people really, really hated her. And it wasn't always because just because the team was bad. So it, but they, they clearly at that point, like had to sell the team and they had to move on to somebody new. And so that was, and they, they had set themselves up. Obviously they had built the stadium and so the, the stadium was ready to go. So they had an asset. They could sell it for a significant amount of money. Like the brewers compared to what, you know, they would have paid for it in 1970 versus what they sold it for. Obviously, uh, you know, a completely different stratosphere of money. Um, but now you know, Mark has taken it from that original guy. I think he bought it at 220. And when he sells, if he sells or whenever who sells, it's going to be over a billion. So, yeah, like the the appreciation in value of these teams is just leaps and bounds and i think took it sort of out of the hands of um you shouldn't necessarily entrust it to somebody whose main qualification is their parents were the previous owner <laughs> right all right moving on we've got a few more questions to get to this week before we wrap up price trozen is asking in the past this would seem like a dumb question but what do you think the ball will be like this season the brewers could use a couple extra yards on their fly balls and this one is a dumb question would even a full juice berry bonds have been able to break the home run record with last year's non-yankees ball uh so i don't know if, if spring training is any indication steve maybe the bouncy ball's back but uh what do you think we're playing with this year uh, yeah, I mean, again, there was there was so much variation in the balls last season. Yeah, you know, between the three different versions, um, it'll be interesting to see what they finally settle on this year. I mean, as far as Wood Bonds have been able to break the home run record, I, I mean, are we talking about sixty one? Because yeah, I mean, I guess he broke seventy. McGuire's seventy. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. That's a little bit tougher, but man, he was hitting those in San Francisco. Yeah, he was <laughs> right. Right. You know, and so I, yeah, I think, yeah, when you're talking about an all time generational talent like that, you know, I wouldn't put it past them, regardless of, of what, what balls they were playing with or what era it's in. I mean, he probably could have done it. Well, the hope is, is that we end up with the Goldilocks ball, right? The one that they said was neither too bouncy nor too dead. <laughs> that's just right. Yeah. 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 That's what we hope is that we get that. And that was the ball that was showing up at Yankees games down the stretch and that people spotted uh, in the playoffs as well. Like that was the baseball that uh, that was getting used towards the end of the season. So I think that's probably where we're headed and it's better than what we had had, which was a ball that was so dead that offense just completely ground to a halt last year. But there's so many moving parts this year. Um, there's so many different things. We're not going to be able to say from like, watching games and that what's going on here what we have to wait for is for the uh the analyses both the the kind of analyses where they actually look at the ball and break it down and go okay this is what the the ball's core looks like but also the analyses of what exit velocities look like and how how much drag there is on the baseball and those things and those tend to come a few months into the season once they have a big enough sample and they feel confident enough to put their their information out there uh, so I think we have to wait a little bit on that. But yeah, the hope is that it's a more medium balanced. I don't think we want to go back to like the 2019 super happy fun ball era, right? Like that was ridiculous. Well, Christian Yelich would like to, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, the thing you want, you want, you want starting pitchers or well, you want all the pitchers to feel like they can actually pitch in the zone. 
You know, I think yes. that's the biggest thing with any ball that they have. Just make it so pitchers feel like they can pitch in the zone with the repertoire and not feel like they're just going to get punished for it. You know, so I think that's that should be the main goal um, when when they're deciding on which ball to use. Like, what's what's actually a fair flight on the ball, um, so pitchers don't get absolutely demolished. You know, because again, you talk about what what makes games drag along. It's when pitchers feel like anything that catches the plate is a home run. And so they clearly pitch to avoid that. Everything's just meant to get like swinging strikes. Um, and, you know, games just get longer and longer between the walks and the absurd, um, you know, 10 pitch battles that result in strikeouts or something like that. So, you know, again, hopefully they get something that everybody feels just plays fair. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. You want pitchers not to be scared of pitching in the zone. And you also want hitters willing to swing for power because they're not worried about the ball, even a well-hit ball, dying on the track. Like, that can also come into play sometimes where it's like, well, okay, what what are we going to do here? Because there is no happy medium. And, yeah, we want to see that happy medium. What would a, a happy medium be for like home run totals? Like should the the leader every year, I always think of like 40 used to be kind of like, oh, you had a big power year and that should lead the league. I think that you want 50 to be attainable, but not easy to get to, right? Because like, I, you know, I remember there were a few seasons in the early 90s before things got really out of control that it was like you hit, you know, 36. Mm-hmm. That was, you'd, you'd lead the league with like 36 home runs. Yeah, I think if you have somebody who can get to 50 every few years, every every other, every third year, I think that's kind of a, a good place to be. Remember, a big part of the home run spike in the, the, the bounty ball era, which I guess you could sort of loosely define as the second half of 2015 up through 2019, and there were variations in there. It would go back and forth, and it would, it would become bouncier and less bouncy, but that sort of era where they were really, there were times when the ball was really bouncy, um, what highlighted that was not so much the top end numbers going up because the top end numbers weren't going up. It was that basically everybody was hitting 20. Like you, you had to really, really lineups of 20 home run guys. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was what was driving it. Remember that twins team that broke the record, the old Yankees record from the sixties for team home runs. And they did it with a top end guy who I don't even think hit 50. I think they were in the low 40s, like maybe Sano hit like uh, like 45 or something. And and they broke the team home run record. And that was just because up and down the lineup, everybody was cranking 20. And that was sort of what defined that era. So I don't know that if the top end is necessarily like the right way to think about it. I think that it's more about like what your what the worst hitting guys, you know, what is what is the guy who's getting uh, 600 plate appearances what is the low end of that for, for home runs? Is it a guy hitting four or is it a guy hitting 12? You know, that probably is a, is a more accurate way of measuring it, but I haven't given it enough thought to really think of like what exactly those numbers should be. I don't know if there is actually what they should be. All right, moving on. We've got a couple of quick uh, fun questions to wrap things up. First, we have MC Sham asking, what's the best local bar to shuttle to and from the game? Uh, I am not uh, a native of Milwaukee, but you guys probably know better than me. Steve, do you have a favorite? I mean, the bars on Blue Mound have the most shuttles. 
So mm-hmm. like they're going to run a couple at a time. Like if you want to guarantee that you get out there and your shuttle will be uh, both picking you up and leaving pretty quickly, I'd go to, you know, pretty much any of those blue mound um, bars. We usually go to Steve's on blue mound. Is it still Steve's on blue? No, mound? it's Magoo's now. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> they've, they've all changed recently. Um, yeah, name, they have. Yeah, they, they've been renamed. Well, um, Kelly's Bleachers hasn't changed. Dugout 54, yeah. if you're looking for a big selection of craft beer on tap, I think they have 40 taps, at least 30. They have a, a big selection uh, and some really good stuff. Um, so Dugout 54, which is on 54th and, and Blue Mound right there, that's one that we uh, go to a lot. Food's solid there as well. Um, Kelly's is always packed. My wife doesn't like going there because it's just it, it feels like being at a frat party. Um, so we generally well, don't all of those, Kelly's. all of those bars there are more, uh, in that vein. What's the Irish pub? What's the Irish pub Kelly's? Yeah. No, no, no. It's down from Kelly's. It, that's another one that's changed a few times. That's yeah. That's dug up 54 or I guess it used to be, uh, Haggerty's. That's, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Haggerty. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, but yeah, it's now, uh, dug up 54. Um, Oh, yeah. okay. I was thinking Dugout 54 is the other one that used to be the, the Mexican restaurant. No, no, no. That And then it became Fat Valdez. <laughs> We're really yeah. remembering some places here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, the, those uh, those ones there. And they also have the advantage if you're down towards the like the Dugout 54 Kelly's Bleachers side of things. Um, if it does somehow turn out, if there's something going on with like being access getting into the lot or whatever, you can just walk over. It's a pretty quick 10-minute walk. You can just walk yourself over and uh, and go to the game that way. We've done that a few times when we didn't want to wait for a shuttle because yeah. something was going on there. I mean, other places, uh, there's the one place on 76th Street across from, like, Blue's Egg over uh, there. That does, yeah, Brewski's does a shuttle. Uh, City Lights, that might be the only brewery in town that does a shuttle. Yeah. That one's not too far from the stadium. Um, and then there's a bunch of the South... Well, yeah, salty sidebars. Stenny's has one, kind mm-hmm. of in Walker's Point. Um, um, Fat Daddy's has one over there, uh, also in Walker's Point, just across the street from Stenny's. Um, if you're oh, in the Brady Street neighborhood, uh, Jack's has a school bus shuttle that they run, and that is really useful for, like, when I lived on the east side for a couple of years there, um, we could just walk over to uh, that from our place and didn't have to do didn't have to touch car the whole the whole time that was really nice to be able to just nice. go and do that so um yeah there's there's uh shuttles from lots of different places we go to uh if you're like in the bayview um walker's point area olidia's runs a shuttle and they have good food and good beer selection so we uh will meet people at olidia's and then shuttle in from there so that's another one that i would recommend cool Plenty of lists. Hope you all were writing those down. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely R- Ryan will put them all in the show notes. Yeah, there we go. Can we do that? <laughs> no. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. There are there are places you can go every year. This stuff gets <laughs> updated. Um, we were I was super excited last year. A bar um, like four blocks from our house, Red Bar, um, started running a shuttle for the first time. So that was super nice, nice to have an actual shuttle running from. Uh, from someplace in walking distance. So we used that a lot last year. I don't know if they're like, running it this year, though. Yeah, I feel like on Milwaukee has an article that they update before every season that mm-hmm. has a list of all the, the shuttles available. So they yeah, do. Somebody's 
somebody's usually publishing a, a list if you're if you're looking for them. But um, yeah, like I said, as far as like if you're worried about frequency and making sure you can get on your shuttle, the Blue Mound ones run the most. Yes. Yep. The Blue Mound one. I mean, for all intents and purposes, that is our stadium district, right? Like that's yeah. the way that uh, a lot of places have stadium districts like right around in the neighborhood, Wrigleyville and you know, most a lot of places have these now. Um, and it's going to be contentious if the Brewers try to build their own stadium district down by the stadium itself. If they which do, they will, which they will. It's going to be feel like right now. That's that's been more Bucks fans trying to project it onto you know, around uh, AmFam Field than than an actual Brewers project at the moment. So. Well, we'll see if that's part of the uh, of the of the bequest they are seeking from the state government is for that. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, last Patreon question this week comes from Luke Roy's suitcase uh, <laughs> saying, listening to Brewers fever and Brewers keep turning up the heat to get me excited for the season, but realize they both kind of suck. Are there any other Brewers songs I should know about to get me hyped for this season? Well, I mean, first off, those songs are supposed to suck. There, there's a certain <laughs> irony to enjoying those songs. So like them sucking and being a time capsule of, you know, the early eighties or whenever they were, you know, originally made like that. That's what they're there for. Enjoy it for that, that reason. Um, Cause beyond the first few weeks of the season, you're not going to start uh, playing them as bangers in the, the parking lot <laughs> after that. <laughs> I was going to say um, any of Paul's uh, writings, you know, the, the, cover of uh pepper by butthole surfers is my favorite of his so uh the lyrics that get shared every once in a while but ryan any other thoughts any other brewer songs to sing yeah so uh yeah you have to listen to uh and i'll i will put a link to this in the show notes because it was given to us this week uh james um from tricky henderson listener to the podcast here um and he uh he did a song called pakoda um to the tune of lola about uh, oh, Brewers projections. So nice. did you you listen to that? No, no, oh. I have not yet. Yeah, no. you gotta gotta give that a listen. So um, yeah, I will I will put a link to that. But uh, yes, that it is it is extreme commitment to the bit, and it made me smile, and I was very happy to hear it. So uh, definitely more in the vein of that, because like Steve said, those songs from the '80s when teams were doing these things, "Go Cubs Go" and the various Brewers ones, and everybody has these. Like every fan base, they have something from the '70s and '80s that's like embarrassing now, but fans of a certain age love them because they grew up with them. But they all suck. Like by definition, they suck. So <laughs> this this one from Tricky Henderson is does not suck. It is very entertaining and uh, amused the hell out of me. So yes, though changing lyrics to popular songs is a little bit of a cheat because of course, well, of course. it sounds better. Well, of course, yes, you're you're using a great song. Um, yes. And yes, but like there's a long tradition of that. Bob Dylan was ripping off all of his uh, melodies to all of his songs in the early '60s. And like, yeah, blown in the wind. Which is making a, making is songs for your making songs for your local baseball club should be similar to Bob Dylan's uh, original <laughs> songwriting. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Like, if we're if we're gonna hold Bob Dylan and not hold it against him that he ripped off "Blowing in the Wind," the melody to "Blowing in the Wind," like, who are we to to uh, get mad at Tricky Henderson for using Lola, like a certified banger? Oh yeah, not yeah. not criticizing that. Go for it, man. Go for it. 
All right. Well, look for that. Uh, in the meantime, we'll wrap things up here because we've been going kind of long. Uh, but before we go this week, we'd like to ask you to leave a review and a rating for this podcast over on Apple Podcasts. A reminder, when you do leave us a five-star review, Paul will read literally anything you write in that review. So there's your incentive to go do that. Uh, also, make sure your question gets answered. Go to patreon.com slash tailgate. Two bucks a month uh, guarantees that you get your question asked and answered here on the show, even when we're running up <laughs> on the uh, hour and a half mark some weeks. So uh, please go do that. A reminder that $5 level get to the minor league extra. Definitely something you want to sign up for as we approach the season. And also, of course, uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to us, whether that's on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Pocket Casts, wherever else. That'll help us out, too. Make sure you never miss an episode here. So uh, that'll do it for this week. Steve, thanks for stepping in. Appreciate you coming in as a pinch hitter or relief pitcher, I should say, for you uh, whenever <laughs> we need it. Yeah, I, I, I'm a relief ace. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Uh, thanks again, Steve. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back here next time on Milwaukee's Tailgate.